We made this. Ladies and gentlemen, it was a cold-blooded, premeditated murder. Hi everyone, welcome back to another episode of Red and Berry Podcast with me, Sarah. And Frankie. And our super special guest today is another Sarah, a better Sarah, I think. We've upgraded. Probably say, yeah. <laughs> uh, Sarah Hillary, the author of many books, um, biggest of which at the moment is Fragile. That's fair to say, isn't it? That's certainly the latest one. Yes, thank yeah. you. It's yeah. a pleasure to be here. Thank, Thank you, you so, so much. much for coming on, Sarah. Um, we do a little thing where I've we've written a little bio about you, and hopefully it's all correct. But I'll read it out, <laughs> and you can tell me if anything's horribly wrong. If that's okay. Okay. So <clears throat> we were discussing before we started, and Sarah was like, "You can read this bio," and I was like, "Yeah," because it's so long because you have such an impressive <laughs> career. So obviously that's funny to me. So here we go. Sarah Hillary is a UK crime novelist and former bookseller from Her- Herefordshire. Good start. I can't even say Herefordshire. <laughs> Born in Cheshire, she moved to the South East to study for a first-class honours degree in the history of ideas. Her debut, Someone Else's Skin, which also started her Marnie Rome series, won the 2015 Thigston's Old Peculiar Crime Novel of the Year Award and was a Richard and Judy book club pick. In 2016, it was selected as one of the titles for the World Book Night Inn in the UK and was also a Silver Falchion and Macavity Award finalist in the US. Her second book, No Other Darkness, was shortlisted for a Barry Award. She won the Fish Criminally Short Histories Prize in 2008 for her story Fall River, August 1892. And in 2012, she was awarded the Cheshire Prize for Literature. Her latest book, Fragile, was published in June 2021 and is a standalone novel based on the motives of Daphne de Maurier. I've probably said that wrong. Rebecca. Nailed it. Thank you. <laughs> I did practice before and I still got it wrong. Outside of writing, Sarah is the programming chair of St. Hilda's Crime Fiction Weekend in Oxford and the co-founder of Ledburied, a crime festival in her hometown of Ledbury, which is an excellent pun name that we greatly appreciate. She's also a wonderfully generous person and a true delight to follow on Twitter. How's that for a bio, Sarah? Did I get it? That was very good. I, I, you're right. It was very long. Um, so I can only apologise for having, for being so old and writing so much. <laughs> Thank you for apologising for how successful your career has been. It's about time, quite frankly. <laughs> I feel, yes. The one thing that jumped out at me when we were sort of reading up on you, what is a degree in um, history of ideas? That sounds absolutely fascinating. Well, it was exactly what it sounds as if it is, really. It was a bit of philosophy, a bit of politics, a bit of art, a bit of culture, a bit of um, sociology. Um, it was, I think it was, it was a, almost a brand new degree at the time. And mm. uh, I'll let you into a secret. The only reason I did it was because I was going to go and do a straight English degree. Um, yeah. But every single one of the prospectuses that I looked at for the places that I was able to get into, I mean, I'm not suggesting this was every single uh, university or college in in the world it they they all had Jane Austen on their um prospectuses and at that point in time I really couldn't face the thought of having to study Jane Austen for three years in whatever capacity um and so I decided I'd rather study Nietzsche and um in fact George Eliot it turned out was one of the papers uh, one of the that I studied on the history of ideas so I took a punt on a brand new um degree course which it was at that time history of ideas that they'd only been running it it's only been had one graduating year um, I'm not sure if, um, how popular it is as a degree now, but it was certainly fascinating. 
And it was really, I, you know, it was a good, it was definitely the right decision to make because it introduced me to lots of other thinking other than just the thinking of, you know, in, in terms of novels. Yes. I mean, you're talking to two people who have English degrees and you've absolutely sold it to me. So I wish yeah. my uni had done it. <laughs> I think I've done a massive was, waste yeah. of time now in my life. I wish I could go back because that sounds fascinating. Well, uni was was fantastic. But I mean, I, exactly like you, actually, I've come out of it with a lovely degree, but I don't think I'll ever read another classic again because I'm so burnt out on it. I mean, this was many years ago now, but it's, it's a genuine problem. Mm. It's a yeah. problem in education. I remember my A-level English teacher. I had two. One was absolutely amazing and the other one loved Jane Austen. The one who was amazing didn't want to teach us T.S. Eliot because he loved T.S. Eliot so much. And he thought, by the time you finished unpicking T.S. Eliot, you're not going to love him anymore. And I hate the idea that I'll be the one that brought you to that. And that, I think there is a real case to be made for, you know, not for for the way in which education can sometimes suck a, a joy out of things. It shouldn't really, and mm. ultimately it never does, because you circle back round mm. um, uh, to certain things, um, not obviously Jane Austen, but um, for some <laughs> you do circle back round. And um, and you really, I think the great thing with a degree is you spend most of your second year planning your dissertation, as I seem to remember, and you can write your dissertation on just about anything. I mean, yeah. I wrote my <laughs> dissertation on um, the hero villain in Gothic literature, Wow, no, or no relation to to the rest of the of the subject that I've been, been but it was a great opportunity for me to write you know um Dracula and um Steerpike from Gorman Garst and all of that and basically just cherry pick what I wanted to write about as opposed to being made to learn about yeah. certain things most of what I wrote about I hadn't learned um but the degree hadn't and uh, you know given me a love for reading it had just well established my love of reading and discovery and learning um and all of that is you know priceless yeah and it's interesting that you talk about you obviously did your dissertation there on gothic literature and there's a heavy gothic influence in fragile right um <laughs> yes. which is yeah were you always a fan of that style of literature or was that something that you've grown to love throughout your your writing career and your studies and things no, in a funny kind of way, I think I've gone right back to the my earliest influences and interests. I mean, I, if you if I went back further still, it would probably be like the Greek myths. I think I started out with children's versions of the Greek myths, but lots of crime writers did because every single one of the Greek myths has a crime in it, um, and it's about justice of one kind or another. And so I think that's a natural in a way. But I then very early on, before I think I even read Sherlock Holmes and discovered detective fiction and crime fiction generally. Um, I was reading Edgar Allan Poe and M.R. James and, you know, collected Victorian ghost stories and all of those sorts of things. And so I think in a way I was revisiting those early influences in, in Fragile because I love, you know, I love being unsettled, being a bit disturbed, being a bit off kilter, um, being outright scared if I, you know, I, I love that. Um, and I think it was an opportunity to try and see if I could make the readers feel some of those emotions. Well, you definitely yeah, did a good job with that. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, yeah, it was one of those books where, I th- like you said, I kind of, as I went through, I just felt more and more unsettled. And I got to the end and I was like, I we try not to give spoilers um, on the podcast, so I'm going to try and talk around it. But it was an ending that I felt was really satisfying. Mm. Um, good, thank you. Yeah, but still kind of stayed true. You didn't get that almost moment of resolve. You did in some ways, but it was still the edge to it. 
yeah, it was one of those books where you finish it and put it down and think, I'm in a really weird headspace now. Um, I'm going to watch <laughs> something really trashy on TV to switch <laughs> completely. Yeah. Definitely, yeah. definitely feel the Rebecca influence in it as well. Yeah. That same kind of unsettled feeling that you get from that and the house playing such a big part in the story as well. Was it always your intention to make the house essentially one of the other characters in the book? I don't think necessarily that was my first idea. My my first idea was almost like a straight from Rebecca idea, which was what would it be like to be uh, in a position where you were sort of like the second wife? You know, I mean, Nell isn't that in this mm. story, but you are in this quite intimate feeling relationship uh, with um, with a man whose ex-wife very much is still a presence in the house. But instead of her being a ghost, um, it, I, I thought what would be like if Rebecca actually came back into Mandalay, you know, if she wasn't dead, she just walks through the door one day. And instead of it being everything that the the, the new young wife is imagining is going on, um, what, you know, the, the, the reality of what's going on is still, I think, one of my favourite twists in, in fiction. Mm. The moment when, when she discovers the truth is... Um, you need to read it when you're about 11, because if you don't, then I think the danger is either you'll, you'll see it or you will. It won't have the same impact because as an adult, it doesn't seem so shocking. But actually, that moment when if you didn't know, you know, the the, the reveal moment is very shocking. Uh, and I, the thing I also love about Rebecca is the way you can just read it different times in your life. And it's a different story. Um, and I love books like that. I mean, mm. not many do. That definitely does. So the the house came a little bit later because the the other influence um, for the story was the the, the film uh, the servant nineteen sixty three film the servant mm-hmm. with Bogart and um, James Fox and Sarah Miles and that takes place in this really narrow sort of Georgian house in in London with a spiral staircase and and it's all about power and where it rests inside the house and how it doesn't rest with the people that you think it should or that it will rest with. And actually the front door of Starling Villas in Fragile is exactly modelled on the front door for the house in The in the Servant. Um, none of the other things are exactly modelled on, on anything, but that front door, particularly with its half moon of glass, was particularly, was exactly uh, visually based on that. If it's good enough for Bogey, I suppose, it's good enough for Fragile. I hope so, yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think, you know, you've you paint it so vividly the house like I really felt even though obviously I I don't live in a house quite like that unfortunately in some ways but uh, it felt familiar in a lot of ways and I think that that's one of the reasons why it, it felt extra haunting because it even though it's it sounds like quite a vast house it felt very claustrophobic and you really painted that kind of the growing the walls almost closing in a bit on Nell as the story goes and uh, yeah it was a, it was very enjoyable read from I really enjoyed the unsettlingness so thank you for unsettling us both (laughs) my pleasure always (laughs) love to be mildly disturbed yeah only Um, mild is a nice refreshing change for us usually it's considerable disturbance (laughs) that we experience yeah well depending on the topic Um, (laughs) I mean completely unrelated note but this has been stuck in my head since I read it and I don't know I don't actually know what's made me think of it but Robin as a character reminded me so much of have you watched the Handmaid's Tale TV series I have Commander Lawrence, the Bradley Whitford character, I don't know what it was, but the whole way through, that's all I could pitch, all I was thinking about. And I know from the description, obviously, he doesn't look like Bradley Whitford does. Yeah, something about him. Is he the one who came up with the whole idea? Yes, yeah, with the kind of the, the, the wife struggling. 
Yes, yeah. exactly. Oh, now that's really interesting. You see, because it was I to have watched *The Handmaid's Tale*. He was one of he was a, I think the o- the only male character I really enjoy in that in yes. that show. Um, there's other male characters who aren't wholly bad, but they're not on screen very often. And yeah. um, and obviously you're not watching it for them. Um, but he, I thought, was really interesting. And and it was when we got to the series with him in it that I realised when I'd reached the end of *Fragile* that there was this sense. I said, you'll see. Sometimes it gets mentioned that. I, I saw it as Rebecca meets The Handmaid's Tale. Um, and it's not to do with her servitude in the house. It's to do with that whole idea that's contained in those scenes with her and Captain Lawrence, where basically she is the weapon that they have forged within their own creation of this of this society. So it, she was just a mother, a young woman, a mother, but she has become an absolute, you know, avenging angel, murderous weapon because they made her into one. And so the seeds yeah. of their own destruction were sown in there. And that idea I loved. I loved the idea that, you know, it, in your own, uh, you know, ego and arrogance that may it is contained it's a very greek myth isn't it is contained yeah. the means of your destruction the means that you know your hubris will inevitably lead to your downfall and that was definitely an idea that i had in those scenes with robin and nell towards the end when she realizes that he was uh one of the jobs that he did as a local magistrate was to place young vulnerable people into care um as she was placed into care without much thought about the, the nature of the care and what a strange word that is isn't it when you think about yeah what it often means to a lot of people and and often it does mean literally what it's meant to mean but unfortunately uh, quite a lot of the time it doesn't and this is a book about the times when it doesn't um and so she has become who she is because of people like him um and so I th- I'm really pleased that you that you've thought of that actually because I never intended him to be physically like that guy or ne- and I didn't watch those scenes until after I'd finished writing it but I did immediately think of him uh, and, and I'm so glad I'm not crazy <laughs> you've disturbed me well yeah that's me it's it was niggling in my head and because like I said obviously there aren't any direct similarities but actually now you've explained it that it kind of makes sense and obviously I mean in the tv show he's very much a gray character much like Robin is I think and like yeah I kind of get how it's slotting together now so you've soothed my brain a little bit as well <laughs> and speaking of um physical character references I want to thank you for making Joe a young Paul Newman because it gave me the excuse <laughs> to Google Paul, young Paul Newman and have thorough studying of the photos for research. For yeah, context. of course. So. That is a very, very good rabbit hole to send anybody down, isn't it? <laughs> Um, yes, always a delight. Yeah, that was an enjoyable evening. I thank you very much for that. My gift to you. <laughs> <laughs> so, one of the questions that we always ask authors who come on the podcast is if you had to be a character from any of your books, who would you be and why? That's a really tricky question, isn't it? And um, I was trying to think um, of a good answer to it. And I really, I sort of failed. I know some of the characters that I know, obviously I know the characters that I love, but, you know, Noah is still one of the favourite, my favourite characters that I've ever created, but I'm not sure that I would want to be him, partly because of the character arc I took him, took him on where he started out perfectly happy and um, had no idea what was in store for him. So that was, no, I'm not sure I would want that. Um, and I like Marnie, but um, I don't have, I mean, I'd like to have her courage, I think, um, particularly the courage in which, the way in which she allows herself to become vulnerable, which is a really interesting way of 
becoming strong. I quite, and this is a terrible thing to admit, but I actually, my favorite character in Fragile is probably Megan. Um, who is, <laughs> as, as obviously she's terrible, but she's so sort of um, aware of how terrible she is. And she's so yeah. unapologetically terrible. Mm. And she's also very, you know, underneath it all, she's she's scared. You know, she's afraid of being alone. She's she has these weaknesses. She has a weakness for Joe, and she has a weakness for you know the need for company in her old age. And and uh, yeah, she's a terrible person. But I do I I like my monsters. I um you know I do have a fondness for them when I'm writing, and I do like to be asked who I think the monsters are in um in my books. And or I mean, it's rarely the the people that seem the obvious monsters. I. You know, I, I was asked a really good question. Um, no pressure, guys. Um, <laughs> in a recent book club where somebody said, so who is the most fragile character in Fragile? I was just about to ask that. Unbelievable. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can, could see it in oh, your yeah. eyes. Um, and actually, I didn't I didn't think about it because I hadn't been given the questions in advance and I had no idea I was going to be asked it. Um, and I, so I didn't think. And often the answers you give when you don't think about things are, are really interesting because mm. obviously you're trying to be interesting sometimes when you're doing things like this. You don't want to just be boring and say, I'd like to be, you know, the, the goody guy <laughs> or that whatever it might be, the cat. So, um, and I instinctively answered that I thought the most fragile character in Fragile was Carolyn because, you know, Robin's ex-wife, because she is absolutely petrified of growing old, of not being physically attractive anymore, of being alone. And Megan is at a further stage, but Megan has made her peace with how awful she is. Plus, Megan never had any physical qualities that she has attempted to maintain and upkeep, um, whereas Carolyn is all upkeep and maintenance. Um, and I thought she's the one that if you were to, you know, drop her, she she would break. Whereas mm-hmm. I think now I see more as the as the little Japanese bowl that's been broken, you know, when she was young and has has mended hard, as they say. Yeah. She's you know, a survivor. Someone else's skin. Absolutely she is. Um when we sometimes when we break, we mend hard. Um and that's true. You know, if you if a bone is broken, it will actually mend harder than it was, you know, before. It's mm-hmm. that's the nature of of the way the body heals. So yes, I in a funny kind of way, I'd like to be Megan. I'd like to have another go at, at her life for her and see if I can't, you know, do a better job of being a, a better person so that she can again she's somebody that the seeds of her own destruction of her own making if she had only been a kinder person then she might have what she needs which is company in her old age um but she's in she was incapable of that when she was younger of of, of giving the love that she needed in order to to have some love back it's gone a bit deep hasn't it i think we need a comedy question too. <laughs> that, that was that was good we like a bit of deep every now and then we will say something yeah. stupid in a minute i think yeah, it's really interesting worry. what you say about carolyn as well because I think reading her, I think everyone knows someone like a Carolyn or has met a few Carolyns in their time. And it's kind of, you feel sorry for her, even though she's so mean and she's so horrible in a lot of ways, but you can see how painfully insecure she is. And you're right that there's that, it's almost like covering up the fragility with the makeup and the glamour and, you know, everything, the perfume smell that follows her around. It's almost the smell of desperation is yeah it's very, very very depressing but i mean she she has some fun as well so good for her young poor new yeah she has some some really good lines i think megan probably yeah. has the best lines yes, um, yes. but um and you know that that's that's again it's probably because i enjoy writing her so much you know that i i really like writing those kinds of uh people that are very different to me so no i always find men easier to write than women first of all uh, i always found noah much easier to write than marnie 
Um, and somebody explained it to me, someone who knows more about psychology than I do. Apparently, it's something to do with the ego and the id, I believe. It's because when I'm writing Marnie, I'm trying to write from my own experience. I'm probably thinking at some level, what would I do in that situation as a, as a woman? Um, whereas with Noah, I there is no point of reference. And so it's pure imagination. I can leap straight over and into the character. And there's a sort of freeing quality to that. And so I just like to reassure listeners that, you know, the reason I said Megan is not because I'm like Megan. <laughs> Honestly, my poor mother, when someone else's skin came out, you know, they went round, one of her neighbours went round and knocked on the door. I'd grown up in my mother's house where she still lives and said, well, we've read this book and Sarah's had a very dark, obviously very dark things happened in this house. When no. If you would write about that kind of book, if you had had that experience. Yeah. Um, and I think they were teasing, but my my poor mother, I think, was quite and it was entertained on, in one sense. But also, you know, she has to live next to these people. So, yeah, but it's funny, isn't it? People are, in a funny kind of way, I've discovered that the darker and more twisted your books are, the more people assume that it must have really happened. And that you must know something about this. It'd be a bit like thinking, I don't know, that Thomas Harris knows how much human flesh weighs <laughs> the body. It's Are we sure he doesn't? Who yeah, well, we, we have to hope that he doesn't. I do remember for years and years when the first two books came out, which are two of my favourite books, Red Dragon and mm. Silence of the Lambs. And he would never he never gave interviews at that point in his life. And all we knew about him was that he lived in a cabin in, in the woods somewhere with a bunch of stray dogs, a bit like Will Graham in, in the Hannibal TV mm. series which is based on you know uh, um Thomas Harris's life in that in that in that regard and then they published a photo of him somewhere and he looked like lovely old cuddly old santa and up until that point I've been imagining while well, he's in the cabin you know, <laughs> on his own in the middle of nowhere he might actually know how much human flesh uh, and it just added an extra free song to the whole sort of you know delicious horror of those books but then he turns out to look like santa could be a double bluff but could be it could be the yeah. daniel day lewis of the literary world and he goes very method in the yeah. yes yes scary scary thought don't go around for dinner just in case um, i think i think it's all been as you said very highbrow and emotional at this point so let's go in with something a bit silly now we're not silly but i'm i'm afraid i've some terrible news you've actually you've got you've been arrested and you've been tried and i'm afraid it's the death penalty i'm really sorry sarah to be the one to break this, this is to a you light hearted frankly yeah, that's that's impressive that's some impressive crime i'm just yeah. you a parking ticket it's, you know, it's I'm that many sure. parking tickets that you've had. It's um, crossed a Rubicon. Okay, it's the no, Minister <laughs> Parking Tendents worldwide, and we can't well, have you. I know. Could it be that I vilified the United Kingdom? Is that why I've been arrested? And that must be it. That must be it. Must with your terrible be. parking. Yes. <laughs> The good news is that even though you are being put to death, we're going to make you uh, a slap up meal before you go. So what would your death row meal be? Do you know, I saw that question in advance. You very guys very kindly gave it to me. And when I saw it about a week ago, I thought I'm going to have to really think about a good answer to that. And then I have just been so busy that I haven't thought of a good answer to it. And so I think, I, I don't know, a part of me thinks rather than have something that you know is your favourite meal, just try something for that I've never tried before for the, for the last week. And also something that would inconvenience Convenience the people that <laughs> I think something that maybe would make because I you know may as well um, if they're going to um, I don't know if it's going to be lethal injection or electric chair maybe something that would make me really messy to clean up afterwards I love thinking, that really gross violent curry I don't know something TNT yeah, because why not? That would be my final act in in the world. You know, may as well. I think if if this is you know this is the way everything's headed. Um, so that end. wasn't a proper answer. 
Um, but also then if I tried something I'd never tried before, it wouldn't really matter if it was horrible because, you know, so be it. It's not um, going to be the worst thing that happens that day. <laughs> no, exactly. exactly. <laughs> I'm going to go, send for the manager. I <laughs> complain. Um, that is without a doubt the best answer we've had to that question. Easily. <laughs> <laughs> the grossest anyway <laughs> yeah love that very impressed <laughs> and then so I guess you've you know been on death row you've uh, been executed what book would you be buried with oh not to hmm. scrape up all your parts to put in. yes, <laughs> yes. it's gonna be whatever is I um I don't know the superstitious kind of weird alchemist part of me wants to say whatever book I'm working on at the time because you know you never know I might we don't know do we what might happen afterwards I don't like to make that call. Um, and so I feel like you know, if I get the chance to finish, it's just good. that's not one of the things that's going to really bug me is if I die halfway through writing a book um, and I haven't, you know, and it was a really good one and I was really enjoying it and I hadn't had the chance to ruin it yet, you know, <laughs> yeah. that stage of writing with it. Um, um, because especially if I'm going to be a messy corpse, I'm not mm. sure I want to take a favourite book. Yeah, I feel that would be the final insult, wouldn't it? To mm. my favorite. So unless I took a book that I really, I know I can take the collected works of Jane Austen. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> bury me, bury me with every book. <laughs> actually, yeah. that is actually how you were put to death. Was that you were clubbed to death with the, the by, complete works of Jane Austen? Yes, by her fans who were very annoyed with me after this. Um, but it's uh, there, there are other people that are more the other fa- other fans of other books that that would be more violent. I feel Jane mm. Austen. Don't know what they do. Fan you to death. Um, <laughs> Promenade you to death. Yes, exactly. Look down their noses after you make some speech about you know your uh, petticoat or something. Like that. <laughs> um, but no. Um, well, if it was the Brontes, then I would be worried. You know, just <laughs> up on a windmill. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. No, I think that was very nice and silly in- interlude. I enjoyed that. There we go. Fantastic. We needed a bit of light relief. <laughs> Um, while we we've just you've obviously made your feelings clear about Jane Austen, but, uh, what what typical crime genre trope are you sick of at this point? While we're complaining about things, what do you read in a book and it just takes you out of it or just ruins the overall feeling for you? I I used to have a problem, but it was more crime drama than crime books. Um, when I first started writing, when I was first writing someone else's skin, I had been I. There'd been a, a lot of books about um, lead detectives who had so much trauma. Now, Marnie has trauma, but so much trauma that you wondered how they were able to be functioning in the police force. Having said that, I did get a fan letter when someone, well, it was, it was the opposite of a fan letter, um, a letter once, when someone else's skin first came out, which was basically saying none of these police people ought to be in charge of criminal investigations they're all so traumatized and unwell they should be in an institution somewhere <laughs> uh, and I which I thought you know was fair really um although a bit hard on Noah but no I um I had a problem with those there was a sort of trope of a certain kind of detective who would do his day's work and then go home to his lonely caravan on the beach with his bottle of whiskey and mm. his photos of his family that he'd lost to his, to his job, you know, pinned to his fridge and it inevitably knock all the, the photos to the floor in a moment of rage at the end of his day. <laughs> and then the next day he'd go in and do his job again. And then he'd go <laughs> And that I found, I don't know, I just didn't want to write those, a a sort of detective who was living without any kind of human contact in their private life, because I thought, I don't trust that. I don't, I want to see someone that's at least trying to have a 
some semblance of a private life. And it was a promise I'd made to Noah at the beginning when I first started writing him that despite, obviously, the fact that he was going to, as a, as a, as a gay black man in the Metropolitan Police, he was not going to have an easy ride of it. He was obviously going to confront elements of homophobia and racism. Um, but I wasn't going to make his story about homophobia and racism. I wanted his story to be about a man who was very good at his job, completely happy in his own skin, had a happy, supportive home life, had a good time when he wasn't at work. You know, that was deliberate on my part. Um, I think the other trope, a more recent one perhaps, is the trope of my husband slash boyfriend has um, died suddenly and they weren't the person that I thought they were. Mm. Now, I'm not saying that can't make a good story, but I just, it, 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 for me, there's something in it, fun, there's something fundamentally amiss in it, which is that I just feel the human beings are more messy than that. I don't, you know, I think, it, I always think there must have been some clues, you know, there mm-hmm. must be something going on there. It's highly unlikely. And if it, if it, I just find it quite, it's, it's too easy as an inciting incident. It feels a little bit at pat, you know, I mm-hmm. think I would prefer to have those flawed human beings. It's why even the monsters in my books always have some lightness in them, you know, and even the good guys have some darkness in them because I just feel, um, and they they can't control all, that, all of those emotions all of the time. Um, so I think um, secrets being kept are a, are a great start for a story and the uncovering of secrets is a great start to the story. But I find the so it's often it's an idyllic life as well. It's a, it's a big house. It's, it's a wealthy couple it's you know lots of money and lots of and somehow this is this has helped them to keep the secrets and i think the going behind the doors of the wealthy is no different to going behind the doors of of the unwealthy than um it, it, there's the same mess and chaos behind those doors i don't believe that just because you had a, a comfortable existence that you were always happy i don't think money does that often it does the opposite and corrupts you know causes its own destruction so yes i don't yeah i think um i i like a lot i like i like mess emotional mess in my in my crime characters and stories and so sometimes i don't trust those very neat boxes that that are used as a sort of formula um, or a structure for a crime novel but luckily most crime novels i read don't do that <laughs> good i think um it makes it a bit less relatable as well, mm. because when you've got these perfect characters, you, you can't, with the imperfect ones, you you see yourself in them, you're looking around, you're thinking, oh God, could, you know, that, that guy at work, I reckon he could cut me down in two minutes or whatever, you know, and you, you just can't relate to those perfect characters. It's mm-hmm. It doesn't feel realistic. And personally, I quite like the chilling, oh God, this could actually happen to me feeling. I think you're absolutely right. You put your finger on it because I think for me, uh, the writer's job is to connect to your reader. Yeah. Um, and I think the idea of an aspect—it's almost like an aspirational idea, isn't it? It's like, look at this perfect life. Oh, whoops, it's not perfect. But I don't, I don't aspire to. I don't believe, really believe in a perfect life. First of all, and I don't read books in order to to, to have that sort of wish fulfillment aspect certainly not crime novels I think uh, and there, I suppose there's a certain satisfaction in watching some sort of wealthy young person that had missed all the signs if they were there suddenly being made to face up to a lot of awful terrible things but I just feel I'd rather have started with a complicated character and and, and then see what happens see them seeing see them conflicted in their responses to things I don't know I'm 
maybe I'm I'm a bit weird. It's very possible. I know I do have very strange, you know, things that I enjoy. I, I can remember being absolutely, you know, vilified at uh, film college. No, it wasn't film college. It was A-level college. And I was doing a film studies course and we were um, watching Psycho. Mm. And I made the I, I didn't consider it a mistake. And, I, and no one I've mentioned it to it since has thought this. But everybody in the room was horrified when I said that I thought Norman Bates was quite sweet. Um, it's sweet. It's his mother <laughs> yeah, that's the problem. Anthony, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, it's Anthony Perkins. Yeah, and you know that was a deliberate choice by Hitchcock. You know, mm. it's a, a novella of that book. He's horrible. He's middle aged and you know overweight and all the rest of it. But they absolutely found that you know I was made to feel like I was very strange. Then I became a crime writer, and all the crime writers were like, "Yes, come and play with us." And so obviously it was just I was talking to the wrong crowd. So I do, I you know, I I think um, crime writers on the whole, I think quite like complicated people and complicated situations and and the nature of a puzzle. You know, it's we we like to solve a puzzle, and for me, the best puzzles are people. So I guess it all comes down to that. I think as well, you made a really good point about how um, you even your bad characters have some good, and even your good characters have some bad because that's real, isn't it? You know, the the Mm. real baddies in life aren't you know twiddling a handlebar moustache and tying you to a train track they're not outwardly evil so there is it this gives it makes a well-rounded realistic as you said sarah said you know a credit the other sarah a kind of credible realistic thing that could happen to you because it's the sheep you know wolves and sheep's clothing thing nobody's you know there are some people that hide in plain sight with their evil the tory party but other than them you know it's not always they don't and this is the thing they don't think they're the bad guys no No one does So you must always be very careful, I think, when you're Mm. creating um, antagonists in fiction to to be be true to them. They don't believe they're they think they're the heroes Mm. in those. You know, I mean, Hannibal definitely thinks he's the hero of that story. And and Will Graham doesn't think he is, of course, which is the genius of that book. He's there's a hero who absolutely doesn't feel heroic, um, believes that he is the, the villain. So that's particularly clever. But I think. Yes, you've got to be, you know, bring across, and that is much more frightening. I mean, I do remember one of the earliest reviews, and I think the publisher liked it, or maybe it's because I liked it so much, they printed it in the front of the paperback. And I can't remember who, was, who it was who said it, but they said it was the ordinariness of the of the story that was so terrifying. Mm. It's because it could happen to anybody, because we're all, you know, the near, I think the nearer as you feel as the reader to the lives and the just and the and the crimes that happen in crime fiction, mm. the the edgier and more disturbed and more unsettling the readers. And so when you're presented with, you know, rich people in a mansion, the outset, I think I think you have to work really hard to get the reader feeling that connection. Because otherwise what you're feeling is, you know, sort of maybe a bit of jealousy or a bit of sort of, you know, hoping they get their comeuppance mm. in some sort of, you know, that'll sort of teach them right sort of way. But what you don't feel is an immediate empathy, unless you are yourself a very rich person sitting in a house surrounded by crime fiction. But I don't think they tend to read a lot of crime fiction. I'm, I may be wrong, but you don't often hear, for instance, <laughs> about the Tory party reading a lot of crime fiction. Too busy committing Maybe the crimes. Maybe it would be better if they did. But yeah, so too busy committing the crimes. Yes. You know, you know, <laughs> yes, quite right. Um, or giving us the material for the crime <laughs> that we write that's true giving us the rage that fuels so much of our life yeah. <laughs> so you mentioned as well about obviously being buried potentially with one of your works in progress so yes. i guess you strike me perhaps as perhaps a bit of a workaholic 
maybe mm. is that fair to say I, I think I'm certainly very busy all the time I'm not sure Great. how productive <laughs> not <to> be, um, <laughs> I think workaholics are more efficient um but I'm I certainly do a lot um and um I do I, I love writing um and I've discovered I also love other things which is in some ways a bit of a pain because it means I have less time for the writing because I so much enjoy for instance I really enjoyed helping to organize St Hilda's Crime Fiction Weekend I love this new Ledbury Crime Festival that I'm running with um, the Ledbury Books and Maps team in Ledbury. Um, I love mentoring um, uh, crime fiction's rising stars. I love teaching crime fiction. I'm about to become a fellow at the Worcester University. Oh, congratulations. Um, and so there's so so much stuff that I enjoy doing. Um, and then the writing is sort of, you know, my my first love and whenever I re- return to it, it it still feels like that but all the other stuff informs and inspires what I'm doing you know around the edges of it so uh, and it's certainly preferable to having a day job which I did for years the whole way through writing the Marnie Rome series I had a two day a week day job at least sometimes a full-time job and it wasn't connected with the writing and it didn't have, therefore it was, I had to box it all up, you know, so here was writing, here was everything else. Whereas, you know, the weekend I spent at, at St. Hilda's, I came away not only with a pile of books to read, but with so many great ideas in my head and so much new energy, despite the heat wave, for, you know, for getting back <laughs> to my own writing. And so I think sometimes at the end of the day, as a writer, you sit at your desk and you're on your own and you're making stuff up. But there are things that you could and should do to immerse yourself continuously in the world so that when you go back to your solitary desk, you you do it from a position of understand deeper understanding of, of human beings and of society i think we're definitely gonna have to come to uh, st hilda's next year because it sounds so much i saw the photos on twitter it looks so much fun Um, it is a most fantastic weekend i I missed you at at harrogate which i was very disappointed about but next year i will find i will find you i didn't mean to sound quite so threatening but (laughs) but i will find you you obviously you love writing which is fantastic what do you enjoy most and least about the writing process so that's quite a short answer which you'll be grateful I, I <laughs> <answer>. <laughs> uh, the, my, the first draft is the thing I love the most I don't plot and so the first draft is when I discover all the characters and I get really excited and I don't because I don't plot I have to write really fast first draft and I don't get to go back and read as I go So I have to just so that when I get to the end of the first draft and I go back and read it, it's surprising. You know, the things that I wrote are surprising. And that is just pure, you know, sort of imagination creation. I'm I'm raising this wreck, this ruin that I will later, as Iris Murdoch said, just, you know, ruin. Um, But at that time, it's still I haven't ruined it yet. You know, it's like it's coming up. It's fantastic. I'm building it. Um, And my least favorite bit probably is finally having to accept at the end of however ever many structural edits or edits I've gone through that I can't do anymore with it. It's it, it's as good as this book can be and it has to go out and it has to be published in this form and hopefully it's not too bad um, and I've got <laughs> the next book I write will be better. I think that's, if anyone ever says which is your favourite book, it's the one I haven't written yet. It's the next one, the one I write now because I do think that you know, that's, and that's why I love writing because there's always a fresh chance to get it better. And yeah, so hopefully that wasn't too long winded an answer. No, I would, do you have, do you feel more of a sense of I can do the next one better with 
your series as opposed to the standalones. Is there that sort of continuity of actually I can fix that about that character next time? Not that I think there's anything that needs fixing. No, no, but that's a really good point. Actually, I felt really. Uh, somebody asked me earlier today if it was if it felt freeing writing a standalone after writing a series, and I said I, I eventually got thought about it. And I said um, yes, in a way, but it's the kind of abseiling down a cliff face sense yeah. of freedom rather than any sort of you know soaring great insight because of course in the series I as you say I've had a core cast of characters that I can develop mm-hmm. that are all on their own journeys yes each crime is different but they I know exactly the satellites that are you know moving around that universe um standalone you have to invent the characters you have to win the audience's sympathy for them you have to take them on the journey you have to complete their story within that book. Um, yes, hopefully some of them will live on in the reader's imagination, but you can't guarantee that. And they're out, it's, that's out of your control when the book is finished. You're not going to get another chance to go in and, you know, send Noah on a spa break because he deserves one or, you know, gets closure for Marnie with what happened mm. with Stephen. Um, that's it. You know, that book, and that is, um, I don't know who it was who said, I write novels because I don't have the time to write short stories. But they were very wise because the shorter the thing you have to write, the shorter the universe in which you are operating, the harder it is to get it right. It feels like you've got one shot in a standalone. You've got to raise the whole thing up. You've got to maintain it. You've got to land it like a jumbo jet at the end in a way that feels surprising and yet inevitable and satisfying and complete. And that is very, very difficult. But I, having said that, I really enjoyed writing the book that came after Fragile. And I even enjoyed editing it, which is something that is unique for me. I, in my experience, I don't like editing. I don't, you know, I don't enjoy the hard work. As soon as I've finished the first draft, I'm like, what's next? <laughs> uh, being made to stay and make it better, you know, is quite difficult for me. But actually, Blackthorn, the book that is coming out next summer, um, I really enjoyed editing it. I think I might even have enjoyed it more than I enjoyed writing a first draft, which is, as I say, unheard of for me. Wow. Um, so I just hope it's, you know, uh, the readers will enjoy it. Um, but I've got, I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful, I'm cautiously optimistic. Can you tell us anything about it? Yes, I'll tell you a bit about it. So it's, um, it's a paradise new build building project out on the remote cliff tops in Corn- in Cornwall on the Tin Coast, um, with the sea beating the rocks down below, and this Scandinavian style ultra modern eco um, paradise has been built out here on these cliffs by uh, the developers, and it's about over the course of one summer the way in which the paradise turns to absolute hell and a nightmare and the families that are living there um, are caught up in the chaos and, and destruction and it's about one family right at the heart of it um, who's uh, one young woman called Agnes whose father was one of the people who sold the paradise to the people that came and some of whom, you know some of whom uh, suffered as a consequence of, of, of that lure to the clifftops and her, she's trying to find out what exactly went wrong. And the deeper she digs, the more she realises that everybody who lived in that paradise had a secret. Um, and some of them were really desperately keen to keep them. Oh, you've sold it to me. Yes, please. That sounds great. <laughs> Thank you. Already that setting just sounds so evocative. Oh, yeah, that sounds perfect. Obviously, you, you've talked a lot about all the other things you do other than writing. You do a lot. So I don't know how much time you have to read other things with all mm. of that going on. But what was the last book that you read and loved? 
Well, I always make time for reading because I do honestly think you can't be a great writer unless you are a reader. Um, and if I'm ever blocked or stuck or fed up or tired with my own writing, I will go and read or reread a favourite book. And um, and that will give me that's where the energy comes from for me to keep going. That's where where I'm reminded why I wanted to get into this business. So the last book that I read and absolutely loved is the new Jane Harper it's called Exiles. Um, it has Aaron Falk, who was in The Dry, and um, it's a fantastic, so one of her classic sort of Australian outback noir. It's a small community. It's a, a crime that happened some time ago, and it's about the the effect of that, of that crime on the community and, and uncovering the truth of what really happened. But she's written another great atmospheric you know, landscape is fantastic. The cast of characters is amazing. And there's this real sense of there's a slow burn always with Jane's books, but it is the most satisfying, deep exploration of the psychology of all the characters and the interactions of those characters. And it always comes together at the end in the most stupendously satisfying way. And this Exiles is no different. It has one of the most satisfying endings I've read recently. Sounds great. I loved The Dry, so I'm going to have to pick that up. Yes. And it's interesting she's brought one of the characters back. Would you ever bring a character from Fragile back for anything else, do you think? Um, I don't think I would with Fragile because I sort of feel like I've left them all where they... And I, I, I'm very happy as a reader to, to imagine where they might have gone and to, be, to think from time to time about them. But I'm always thinking of the next... At the moment, actually, because I'm so close to having done all the stuff I can usefully do on, on Blackthorn, I'm thinking already about the... The, the book I'm writing next. And now that I feel I'm finding my feet in writing a standalone a little, I, I'm I'm excited about the creating of new characters. It's characters are my favorite part of, of writing. It's the it's the people. Having said that, it might be quite nice at some point, who knows, to either revisit Marnie and Noah or you know, if I need a police person and I've mm. set a story in London, maybe um, by some strange coincidence, it might be DS Noah Jake who turns up to, or maybe by that yeah. time being promoted, I don't know. But um, so it's, they're always in my in my mind. Namani and Noah, Noah in particular, actually, is, I often think about feelings of guilt and... Um, <laughs> Uh, mainly yeah. you just tell me I should. Um, but but no, I feel with Fragile, I feel that all those characters, I feel justice was served in its various ways it should be towards the end of that book. And so I'm happy to let them go and in whichever directions they, they will have gone. Um, and also, I think it's quite, for me as a reader, I always like thinking about I wonder what happened after the end of, you know, I did that with Rebecca for a long time. And then mm. I read um, the sequel that had been written by somebody else. Um, and it was, it wasn't what I wanted for them. <laughs> um, no. It wasn't the story I'd, you know, I'd made up in my own head. And so actually I would hate to do that to readers to, you know, disappoint them by characters that they'd fallen in love with suddenly being, you know, I don't know, living in Swindon, reading Jane Austen. You know. <laughs> <laughs> was that in the sequel to Rebecca? Were they in Swindon? <laughs> I don't know why Swindon. I Swindon, Swindon. People were taking a pop at Swindon at St Hilda's, so I think that's probably in my mind very much. Um, murder mystery was uh, had a theme that was sort of Swindon-based, but <laughs> apologies to anyone from Swindon. <laughs> <laughs> We'll forward it. any complaints through to you from the people of Swindon. Yes, I'm happy to field those. <laughs> <laughs> oh, amazing. Thank you so much for talking to us today. Thank you for having me on. It's been an absolute pleasure.
Oh, we both enjoyed Fragile so much and we're so excited for this new book. It sounds incredible. And I know you've got an amazing new book deal basically planned for the next few years. So really excited to see your next few. Yes. Well, as well, Blackthorn is the first of those. So it's at the moment, it's two books for sure coming. Um, mm-hmm. So Blackthorn out next summer um, from Pam McMillan and the, the next one, probably the year after that. Got to finish writing it first. Oh, yeah. I've heard that that is quite important in the process. It can be. <laughs> can be quite picky about that sort of detail so um Sarah where can people find you on social media to follow you um good question so I'm on Twitter probably more often than I should be (laughs) Um, I'm at um Sarah underscore Hillary um I'm on Facebook rather less so um if you just look up author Sarah Hillary on Facebook you will find me there but it tends to it tends to be more sort of you know news of events and things um if you go to my website which is www.sarahhillary or one word.com um, you can subscribe to my newsletter where you will hear first about new book news that I have uh, cover reveals you can win well I pick I pick a new um, subscriber every month to send them a book um, and there's always really interesting Q&As with other writers in my newsletters so the most recent one was Mary, Mary Paulson Ellis Fiona Cummings has done one in the past and Will Dean so I always like to recommend my newsletter because it's not just about me there's other you'll learn about other new books and and great writers that sounds really amazing that's what i'm doing now yep you have to Brilliant. pick either sarah or i for the for the book prize now between us <laughs> pick your favorites <laughs> i think you can do that now we've ruined it for ourselves by suggesting it it'll look dodgy well, you know, it's absolutely done by random right? you have to be really careful about these things you can't yes. so i wouldn't even be able to randomly exclude you from the you know that would that wouldn't be random so you stand okay. as much a chance as good a chance as any <laughs> amazing oh thank you so much it's been like yeah absolutely fascinating um i really appreciate you taking the time for us oh it's been a pleasure thank you for asking me on a genuine enjoyment oh thank you and and just to round off our usual little blurb that we finish with you can follow us on social media at red and very podcast wherever you get wherever you go on the social internet that's not a sentence or if you want to give us a suggestion for other authors that we should speak to like sarah which was actually a suggestion from someone on twitter that we reach out to you so that's why i started harassing you online but uh you can email us at red and buried podcast at gmail.com so thanks for listening everybody and we'll see you soon bye bye do you like pop culture and top 10 lists if you do then step inside the den of 10 in the den we have countless top 10 lists to captivate and titillate even the weariest soul we've got lists of films and there's that famous thing about the, the scene where he improvised his way through smashing his hand and cutting his hand open on the glass as he banged his hand on the table. Yeah. I mean, you can't really say boo to that. Music. The rest of the song is like a, just a swirling crescendo of clever songwriting, amazing singing, great drumming, like beautiful guitar effects. Video games. And I think that's exactly what happened with Zelda. It was everything looking back is on a much lower resolution to what we see in Breath of the Wild. But as I was playing it, I just felt like my imagination was just going absolutely wild. TV. You know, this is where a sitcom verges on the cinematic, still in a, in a neat 20 minutes. And the interaction between these vastly different characters is so well realised. And more. Listen to us on all major podcast providers. Find us on Twitter, at 10 of 10 pod where you can like, follow, comment and vote or 
find us on the We Made This Podcast Network at wemadethisnetwork.com. We hope to see you soon in the Den of Ten.